Unleavened Bread Ministries presents From your hands, your feet, your side Unleavened Bread Bible Studies with David Eels Can quench my thirsting soul Purest water made me whole Let your streams of mercy flow Oh Jesus, I trust in you Greetings, saints. Many blessings to you. Thank you for joining us today for the Unleavened Bread Bible Study. All right, we uh, we ask you, Father, to be with us today and bless this uh, study so people understand uh, that you do defend your people against the wicked. It always ends up the same way, ultimately. And uh, thank you, Father, for doing that. In the name of Jesus. Okay, we're going to continue with guarding the house from our enemies, number two. And first revelation I want to share with you is uh, called Factious Infiltrators Steal from the House of God. And this was Samuel Mary Church, 73022. And I want to say some of you may think these teachings are unimportant. Uh, they are important now for the bride and the man-child, and they be very important for the church, which is getting to go is going to go through this same trial of faction in the tribulation. These uh, will help them to um, come into alignment with God through these things. And uh, Samuel said, "We felt this is a warning dream, and cast lots to confirm." And got uh, three heads for a yes. Okay. He said, I dreamed my wife Tiana, meaning joy, happiness, or follower of Christ, representing a disciple of Jesus. Tiana and I were staying at a studio apartment. A studio is a play on words, meaning a place to study the word. We were both in one-room apartment where we shared all things together in common. And this represents one body in Christ, uh, as in Ephesians 2 and 21 and 22, which says, "...in whom each several building, fitly framed together, groweth into a holy temple in the Lord, in whom you also are builded together." for a habitation of God in the Spirit. The apartment had modern and fancy fixtures throughout. Uh, modern represents our current time we live in and something to be aware of or pay attention to now. We had uh, two black laptops and many items of value inside the apartment. And this represents our spiritual treasures, he said, uh, stored up in heaven. Amen. And our studio materials, or study materials, right? Uh, I believe the black laptops uh, represent the treasures of revelations of things hidden in darkness. In uh, Isaiah 45 and 3, 
I will give thee the treasures of darkness, the hidden riches of secret places, that thou mayest know that it is I, the Lord, who call thee by thy name, even the God of Israel. Amen. Our friend Gerald uh, was staying there with us, and Gerald means ruler with the spear. I believe he represents God. God's presence is, of course, with his people now that our Savior, Emmanuel, meaning God with us, has come and reconciled us to God our Father, right? Then suddenly this lady appeared, and I'm not sure who who she was, but we didn't invite her. And as we will see, this woman represents the Judas body of Antichrist, sons of perdition, who are thieves like their father, the devil, and they come to steal and kill and destroy. John chapter 10, verse 10 says, The thief cometh, but that he may steal and kill and destroy. Gerald was concerned about her being there because he didn't trust her. Gerald said, I don't know her. Kind of like Jesus spoke the same words against some people who claim to be religious, right? It felt as if he was trying to warn us. Um, Well, God warns us through his spirit about people and situations. Let me say that there's never been anybody that fell into the faction that we didn't get a warning from God that they were going to do it. Mm Mm-hmm. His Holy Spirit gives us wisdom and discernment, but as we will see, there's always big trouble when we ignore the warnings and um, sear our conscience through self-will or evil reasonings that are against the commands in His Word. His commands are for our safety. We went out came back from grocery shopping, and our hands were full carrying the groceries. Uh, I believe probably hands being full of groceries represents distractions that feed our flesh. When this is occurring, our discernment is uh, diminished so that we are blind to the spiritual dangers right in front of us sometimes. And uh, he went on to say, when we got to the door to go inside, The lady was there, and she offered to open the door for us. She seemed genuine and sincere, and it seemed like she just wanted to help us. Well, we know, 2 Corinthians 11 and 14, And no marvel, for even Satan fashions himself into an angel of light. It is no great thing, therefore, if his ministers also fashion themselves as ministers of righteousness whose end shall be according to their works. And also Romans 16, uh, 17 and 18 says, I I beseech you, brethren, mark them that are causing the divisions and occasions of stumbling contrary to the doctrine which you learned, and turn away from them. For they that are such serve not our Lord Christ, but their own belly. And by their smooth and fair speech, they beguile the hearts of the innocent. Mm -hmm. So then I I handed her our keychain that had a bunch of different keys on it along uh, with the door key. The keys could represent uh, the keys to the kingdom, 
uh, he says, I believe so. She opened the door and let us in and gave us back the keys. Matthew 16 and 19 says, I will give unto thee the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatsoever thou shalt bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatsoever thou shalt loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Jesus has given us the keys to bind and loose, and if we are unwise with this authority, we can uh, loose the enemy and open doors for him to steal from us. All right. Later on, we uh, went out again and came back, and when we went to open the door, we realized that the key to the front door wasn't on the keychain. And when we checked the front door, it was unblocked. It was unlocked, excuse me. And the key was left in the door. So we went inside and all of our items were gone. I felt upset and I realized that the lady must have taken the key off the keychain that time that I let her open the door for us. I then awoke up and this reminds me of Hezekiah when he showed all of his treasures to the Babylonian embassage, and they later came and plundered the temple and all Jerusalem. Mm-hmm. Uh, he said, I felt the Lord was trying to reveal an imposter, maybe trying to gain access or has snuck in to steal, kill, and destroy inside the body of Christ and to be on guard against it. Amen. We get these warnings so we can pray. And God often answers because we pray ahead of time. Okay, and this is um, don't climb the mountain in your own strength. And this is from Kit Giora, 722-22. In, in this dream, I saw two men who had barricaded themselves in a shopping center probably representing Babylon, right? Their main goal was to kill everyone in sight. And, of course, this is similar to Samuel's dream above, the enemy uh, in the Judas, Antichrist, factious body, as merchants of Babylon are seeking to prey upon and steal from and kill those who are feeding the desires of their flesh. And... These two men were prepared for war, and they were armed to the hilt. Many were slain by these two men. So many are taken out because they refuse to go any further in the kingdom by continuing to carry their cross and sacrifice their flesh on the altar of obedience to the word of God, which warns us of these people. And uh, and as we saw, it just did in this revelation, right? As they were uh, taking people out, a call went out to the cops who came and started to attack these two men. I could hear the two men saying, these cops are different here, meaning they are well prepared, he said. Well, that's what we need to be, right? God's ministers are supposed to enforce the word of God which exposes these people. The faction uses uh, slander and criticism to kill and deceive those who disobey God's commands to separate from them. Titus 3.10, a factious man after first and second admonition refuse 
we are commanded. Then the scene changed, and the two men were now in a house on a countryside hill which had green, healthy grass. And inside this house it was dark, and these two men were hiding in the darkness, waiting to ambush those that were climbing the hill. And that's exactly what they do. They ambush. The enemy is always targeting those who are seeking to conquer their flesh and climb the hill to Mount Zion. James uh, 3 and 16 says, For where jealousy and faction are, there is confusion and every vile deed. And that is proven. Uh, and also Psalm 11 and 2 says, For lo, the wicked bend the bow, and they make ready their arrow upon the string that they may shoot in darkness at the upright in heart. Mm -hmm. So many people took up arms and went up the hill hunting for these two. I believe this represents our prayers and spiritual warfare that will succeed in taking these enemies and exposing them. And we must not fight in the flesh with anger or retaliation or unforgiveness. For then we too will fall, as we will see. Ephesians 6 and 10 says, Finally, uh, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of His might, and put on the whole armor of God, that you may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. For our wrestling is not against flesh and blood, but against principalities and against the powers and against the world rulers of this darkness and against the spiritual hosts of wickedness in heavenly places. One of the men uh, was captured and was taken down, but the other was still hiding out in the corner in the darkness, waiting to pounce on people, but was later exposed. And that's the way they are. They'll hide among you or sometimes feign uh, repentance to come back among you, you know. And uh, but you have to ask them to confess their sins, and this is the secure here because they can't do it. <laughs> so then you know they haven't uh, repented. Uh, many mighty men fell at the hands of these two. Uh, Samuel said, "These Judases have betrayed many and spiritually destroyed and killed many who were weakened through disobedience to the word and lazy to conquer their flesh." and climb the hill to Mount Zion. And also, the devil has authority to come against us to our own destruction if we are trying to conquer or fight in our own strength. Okay, so then we got this revelation from Vanessa Weeks. She said, uh, "Remember that we named it, Remember What You Heard From The Beginning. Amen. Vanessa Weeks, 4.13.22. I dreamed that it was uh, night, and I was climbing a grassy hill. This hill represents climbing Mount Zion. This uh, represents, she says, conquering the flesh by putting it under our feet. Amen. And she gives First Peter 1 and 24, For all flesh is as grass, and all the glory thereof is the flower of grass. The grass withereth, and the flower falleth. Right? but it's only the word of the Lord that lasts forever, right? Amen. And uh, we were, are remembering our promise that in Romans 6, 11, 
It says, Even so, reckon ye also yourselves to be dead unto sin. In other words, consider it done because of what Jesus did, right? But alive unto God in Christ Jesus. And let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body. This is the key to let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body, that you should obey the lusts thereof. In other words, believe that Jesus made reconciliation and took your sins to that cross and gave us his life. And this faith makes it possible to die to self and to conquer our flesh as we climb the hill to Mount Zion, which is the bride. It was very dark, but there was a bright light shining on the area where I was climbing. Uh, Psalm 18 and 28 says, For thou wilt light my lamp. The Lord my God will lighten my darkness. And uh, also, Psalm 119, 105, Thy word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. Yes, amen. And uh, Jesus and his word are what lights our way of obedience. Amen. I knew I had to climb to the top of this hill. It was difficult, and I was climbing with my hands and feet. I believe this represents our works and our walk of faith. Uh, as disciples of Christ, we may walk in his steps and have his works to climb to the top of Mount Zion. And Vanessa said, I heard my husband, Barry, representing the Lord, our heavenly husband, who was standing by me, but I did not see him. And uh, she said, this symbolizes Jesus always being with us, even when we don't see him. Amen. And uh, Hebrews 13 and 5 says, For himself hath said, I will in no wise fail thee, neither will I in any wise forsake thee. Right? Amen. She said, Barry was telling me to remember to do the things he had told me to do or to do the things I said I would do. I think these were one and the same. <laughs> and uh, she gives First John 2 and 24. For As for you, let that abide in you which you heard from the beginning. If that which you heard from the beginning abide in you, you also shall abide in the Son and in the Father. Yes, if we pay attention to the Word of God, which was given unto us, we will not fail. We will not be deceived by these killers either. Psalm 15, 1-5 The Lord, Lord, who shall sojourn in thy tabernacle? Who shall dwell in thy holy hill? He that walketh uprightly and worketh righteousness and speaketh truth in his heart. We need to be careful what we think in our hearts and what comes out of our mouth. Being truly honest with ourselves on everything the Spirit shows us or speaks to us about not hardening our hearts and searing our conscience. In verse 3, He that slandereth not with his tongue, nor doeth evil to his friend, nor taketh up a reproach against his neighbor, in whose eyes a reprobate is despised, but who honoreth them that fear the Lord, uh, he that sweareth to his own hurt and changeth not. In other words, they keep their word even if it hurts them to do so. They don't utter rash vows or promises 
and then reason away why it's okay not to fulfill them if they truly have the means or the time. Um, He that putteth not out his money to interest, nor taketh reward against the innocent. He that doeth these things shall never be moved. Amen. Also, um, she said, I heard David, representing the David Manchild Reformers, saying something to me to the effect, to the same effect. I did not see him either. Uh, Philippians 2 and 12, she gives. So then, my beloved, even as you have always obeyed, not uh, as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. And also, uh, she gives Philippians 2 and 13. For it is God who worketh in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. That's what salvation's all about, right? And when I got about halfway up the hill, I got very weary and had to rest for a while. And uh, she gives Galatians 6 and 9, And let us not be weary in well-doing, for in due season we shall reap if we faint not. And she said, I remember thinking of Eve at this point in the dream, um, probably representing the overcoming bride, and how she has had her trials and was overcoming, and now it was my turn. And then I woke up. Oh, praise the Lord. Amen to that. So, uh, Marie Kelton had this, uh, A rock of refuge, a strong fortress to save me. 7.27.22 In the dream, it was nighttime, and zombies were attacking people. These zombies who are the walking dead represent those who are possessed with the stupid demons of faction because uh, they have no conscience whatsoever and don't forgive anybody so they're not forgiven, as Jesus said. I got in a car with a couple of other people and we drove to a refuge where the Lord was. Hmm. That reminds me of Proverbs 18 and 10. The name of the Lord is a strong tower, and the righteous runneth into it and is safe. Then the scene changed, and this time I was observing what was happening. The zombies were still attacking people, but then a group of people started using the Word of God. And when they used the Word of God, a big square-shaped stone came up from under the ground, with ancient symbols on it. Hmm. I believe this stone is the stone which the builders rejected, which is Christ, who is the ancient word, right? The builders became uh, apostate and lost the power of the word, but we must stand on the power of the word to conquer our enemies. And Luke one sixty eight says, Blessed be the Lord, the God of Israel, for he hath visited and wrought redemption for his people. And he has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David. Verse 71. Salvation from our enemies. There it is. And from the hand of all that hate us. And it's so. 
and it has been done. And 73, the oath which we he swear unto Abraham our father to grant unto us that we being delivered out of the hand of our enemies should serve him without fear. So there you have it, promises from redemption and salvation uh, to deliver us from our enemies. It is a part of it. She said, as the zombies were trying to attack people, they would fall on this square-shaped stone that had the ancient symbols on it and couldn't move from it. Yeah. Well, these zombies are ministers of the curse of sin and death, which Jesus bore for us. Galatians 3 and 13, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law, having become a curse for us. For it is written, Cursed is every one that hangeth on a tree, that upon the Gentiles might come the blessing of Abraham in Christ Jesus. And uh, the Lord actually said unto Abraham, I will curse them that curse thee. Okay, so there is still a curse out there on the wicked who curse God's people. First Peter 2, 4-8 says, Unto whom coming a living stone rejected indeed of men, but with God elect and precious. You also, as living stones, are built up a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. Because it's contained in Scriptures, Behold, I lay in Zion a chief cornerstone, elect precious, and he that believeth on him shall not be put to shame. For you, therefore, that believe is the preciousness. But for such as disbelieve, the stone which the builders rejected. The same was made the head of the corner, and a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense, for they stumble at the word being disobedient, whereunto also they were appointed." Yes, God reprobates people, and he appoints this judgment over them. Okay, and Marie got this revelation uh, July the 30th, 2022. We called it Judgment on the Faction. In the beginning of the dream, there was this black teacher teaching uh, I believe this black teacher represents the leadership of the faction who have usurped the true leadership and uh, drawn many of the spiritually weak away unto themselves. I saw this uh, black girl in a bright yellow outfit laying down on a couch. Uh, she said the black girl represents their followers who are walking in darkness. True. The couch probably represents a false sense of rest because of their doctrine that it's all under the blood. And also a couch represents people with psychiatric problems. <laughs> and uh, she went on to say, When I walked up to her, I thought of the spirit of fear because she was wearing all yellow. Well, the factious followers live in a lot of fear and torments because they're under a curse of separation from the body through their willful disobedience to the Word. 
she said, but when I picked up a card that was next to her, it said depression. In bright yellow, like the clothes she was wearing. The card was describing symptoms of depression. Well, uh, the factious body is in fear and depression because there is no life of Christ living in the darkness of witchcraft, which is, of course, the Bible says, rebellion. The dream changed, and I was now in Debbie Finsky's house looking out the door. And there were these big, tall evergreens. Uh, well, also, if you do look out of Debbie's front door, you see the, uh, a fruit tree out there. Yeah. But she said there's these big, tall evergreens representing, I believe, the mature disciples in their neighborhood who have eternal life. Evergreen, right? And in front of the evergreens were huge tigers uh, representing the factious predatory leaders seeking to destroy uh, disciples. She said they were eating the head of another tiger that was already dead. Um, this represents Galatians five fifteen and 16. If you bite and devour one another, take heed that you be not consumed one of another. But I say, walk by the Spirit, and you shall not fulfill the lusts of the flesh. Their devouring one another is reaping what they have sown. This is what God gives to them. It is their ultimate end. I saw a green street sign next to the evergreen tall trees. I then had a vision in the dream of a map, and this street sign was with other street signs in a group. And there was a weather report of a storm or flood that was coming towards the street signs. Well, the street signs represent, you know, in this unison, in this unity, uh, where the big, tall, evergreen people of eternal life live. (laughs) And the storm or flood is coming to remove the tigers and their followers who walk in darkness. Amen. Then it went back to the first part of the dream, and I saw a light, black-skinned girl with straight red hair. And she said she thought that represented Edom, and I do agree. Uh, red hair represents Edom, and the black skin represents walking in darkness, and these are the victims of the factious And this is so that the body is cleansed of these people. And uh, she had on a highlighter yellow jacket and blue jeans and was near where the tigers were. The tigers then came over to her and started grabbing her legs, pulling her downward. Well, the factious leaders always pull down their victims so that they may not walk on the high way of holiness. I knew they were going to eat her. Well, the factious leaders will devour their Edomite followers with their teachings, their black teachings, who are walking in darkness. 
And as we will see, this is the war between Abimelech and his factious people of Shechem when they made war to kill each other off because God had judged them for killing the brothers of the man-child. Hmm. I was trying to call 911 on a cell phone uh, to get help to the girl before she got killed, but my sister, Louise, meaning renowned warrior, was fighting me and trying to take the phone from me. Because I think because that's not the way to go. <laughs> I never got a chance to call 911. Let me say that there is no legal help for the Edomite faction except for the elect to come out from among them. They have to see the true nature of their predatory factious leaders who have destroyed their lives before they can repent. And after that, I looked outside, and the tigers were gone, but the girl was dead, and the only part of her body left was from the waist up. Well, meaning her walk was devoured by them. And that's what they do to people. They don't walk with the Lord after they have imparted their demons to them. She still had the highlighter yellow jacket on. So the faction were taken away by the storm flood like Abimelech and the men of Shechem were taken away for murdering the sons of Gideon. All but one, the man-child. Two white men with shovels came to the body to bury her. One man told the other man that the girl told him that she was afraid to die. Yes, they should be afraid to die because they are dead already. But the man said he realized it wasn't her talking to him, but a spirit in her. Well, spirits of fear and depression are, are on the faction, for they gave up eternal life by hating their brethren. First John 3 and 15 says, Whosoever hateth his brother is a murderer. And you know that no murderer hath eternal life abiding in him. Okay, so Winnie Asagueda got this on 729.22, which we called Watching the Leftist Faction. I found David sitting in a temple on a bench on the right. Instead of the bench facing Forward, though, it was facing the other side where the windows were. So David was watching the windows, which were on the left. Um, in a dream many years ago, after I had overcome the flesh and received the anointing, I went into the temple, and I saw Jesus on his throne, and I sat down next to him which is what the overcomers do, according to Revelation. I then saw people were trying to come into this place of authority through a window on the left. The factions seek authority over God's people from the left, but they, they come up another way besides the door, who is Jesus. And Jesus said to me, 
as he sat on his throne, don't worry about them, they can't come in here. That's what he said. Meaning they cannot have God's authority. And their authority is like Judas's authority to crucify the body of Christ. They have a purpose, but they end up killing themselves. Right? I could hear the people worshiping and praising the Lord. David was joining in worship, but it was also as if he was watching outside those windows for something. Well, I already know what that is. <laughs> David is watching for the factious wolves, Judas's thieves, who lust to have authority over God's people because of their little man syndrome, and uh, the demons who rule them. We watch and we listen to them through dreams, visions, words given to us, and other physical means which they don't know about. They come from the left. Judas and Absalom were traitors, who hung themselves by their own works. And we know, too, that the Lord at this time, as a type of the man-child, was caught up to the throne over God's people and over the wicked factions. As you know, when David came to the throne, he took down the Edomites, their faction against Israel. Concerning them hanging themselves by their own works, I just received by faith at random for the factious leader for the second time. I had a mark in my Bible right there the first time, and this was the second time I received the same thing. And this meaning this means it's confirmed. And I believe this is also for the past uh, factious leaders who have joined him. First Kings Sixteen three through four and eleven through thirteen is what the Lord gave me there. First Kings sixteen three. Behold, I will utter, utterly sweep away Basha and his house. I will make thy house like the house of Jeroboam the son of Nebat. So Basha walked in the sins of Jeroboam, infectioning against the house of David and reaped what he sowed when he was factioned against by his own people and destroyed. Hmm. Verse 4, Him that dieth of Basha in the city shall the dogs eat, and him that dieth of him his in the field shall the birds of heaven eat. And verse 11, He smote all the house of Basha, he left him not a single man-child, neither of his kinfolks nor of his friends. Well, they do kill all of their kinfolks and friends with their spirits. And they see, they've seen it happen to others, yet they do it themselves. So thus did Zimri destroy all the house of Basha according to the word of the Lord, which he spake against Basha by Jehu the prophet. For all of the sins of Basha and the sins of Elah, his son, which they sinned, and wherewith they made Israel to sin, to provoke the Lord, the God of Israel, to anger with their vanities. And that's what the Lord gave me. And I also received by faith at random for him, or them, talking about the other factious leaders who joined him, Isaiah 24, 16 through 18. From the uttermost part of the earth have I heard songs, glory to the righteous. 
But I said, I pine away, I pine away, woe is me. And my finger was on, the treacherous have dealt treacherously. That's where my finger was on. Yea, the treacherous have dealt very treacherously. Fear and the pit and the snare are upon thee, O inhabitant of the earth. And it shall come to pass that he who fleeth from the noise of the fear, because they have that fear, shall fall into the pit. And he that cometh up out of the midst of the pit shall be taken in the snare. For the windows on high are opened, and the foundations of the earth tremble. Okay, um, I'm going to share something with you about man-child uh, judges the faction. Uh, Abimelech, the son of Gideon, began the faction, and all the factious leaders uh, were spiritual sons of mine who became traitors. Hmm. And Judges 9 and 1, And Abimelech, the son of Jerubal, that's Gideon, went to Shechem unto his mother's brethren, and spake with them, and with all the family of the house of his mother's father, saying, Speak, I pray you, in the ears of all the men of Shechem, whether it is better for you that all the sons of Jerubal who are threescore and ten persons, rule over you, or that one rule over you. So he started this faction, Bimelech did, and he put this seed of the curse in uh, the factious people of Shechem. Remember also that I am your bone and your flesh. And his mother's brethren spake of him in the ears of all the men of Shechem, and all these words, and their hearts inclined to follow Abimelech, for they said he is our brother. So they all factioned against Gideon and his sons. And they gave him threescore and ten pieces of silver, just as the chief priests hired Judas to betray Jesus. Out of the house of Baal-berith, wherewith Abimelech hired vain and light fellows who followed him, just as they brought in worthless people to give false testimonies against Jesus, who is a type of the man-child body of our day, as history repeats. And he went unto his father's house at Ophrah and slew his brethren, the sons of Jerubal, being threescore and ten persons upon one stone. But Jotham, the youngest son of Jerubal, was left, for he hid himself. Okay, they missed the one. <laughs> In Jesus' day, he was the only man-child left after Herod, the factious Edomite, slayed all of his brethren. Hmm, another parallel here. And all of the men of Shechem assembled themselves together in all the house of Milo and went and made Abimelech king. Well, just as the factious people have made their traitors king over them, just as Jotham, the man-child, spoke. Now, therefore, if you have dealt truly and uprightly in that you have made Abimelech king, and if you have dealt well with Jerubbabel and his father, and his house, excuse me, 
and have done unto him according to the deserving of his hands. This is the speech of Jotham against the faction. For my father fought for you and adventured his life and delivered you out of the hand of Median. Well, as a type of the David man-child, I fought for all these people, and they became traitors. And uh, you are risen up against my father's house this day and have slain his sons, threescore and ten persons upon one stone, and have made Abimelech the son of his maidservant. She wasn't a full wife. She was a concubine. The son of his maidservant. The leaders of the faction uh, as sons of the handmaid are not of the free woman, according to Paul in Galatians. Uh, Will not inherit with the son of the free woman, Paul said. So they made... uh, this son of a handmaid, king over the men of Shechem, because he is your brother. Then Jotham the man-child said, If you then have dealt truly and uprightly with Jerubal, with his house this day, then rejoice ye in Abimelech, and let him also rejoice in you. But if not, in other words, if you've been a traitor, Let fire come out from Abimelech and devour the men of Shechem and the house of Milo. And let fire come out of the men of Shechem and from the house of Milo and devour Abimelech. And that's a curse that he spoke in the name of the Lord. It was very prophetic. It wasn't from him. It was from the Lord. And Jotham ran away and fled and went to Beer. When you went to beer, yeah, I don't blame him. <laughs> and uh, and dwelt there for fear of Abimelech, his brother. And uh, God sent an evil spirit between Abimelech and the men of Shechem. There you go. This is who did it. And the men of Shechem dealt treacherously with Abimelech that the violence done to the threescore and ten sons of Jerubal might Come, that their blood might be laid upon Abimelech, their brother, who slew them, and upon the men of Shechem, who strengthened his hands to slay his brethren. And the men of Shechem set liars in wait for him on the tops of the mountains, and they robbed all that came along that way by them, and it was told Abimelech. So God sent evil spirits between the faction and caused them to fight one another. And verse 28, And another factious traitor is named. Gael, the son of Ebed, said, Who is Abimelech? Who is Shechem, that we should serve him? Is not he the son of Jerubal? <laughs> yeah. And verse 30 says, In other words, he started a faction here against the faction. And when another factious traitor named Zebel, the ruler of the city, heard the words of Gael, the son of Ebed, his anger was kindled, and he sent messengers unto Abimelech craftily, saying, Behold, Gael, the son of Ebed, and his brethren are come to Shechem, and behold, they constrain the 
the whole factious city <laughs> to take part against thee. Yeah. In verse 34, And Abimelech rose up, and all the people that were with him by night, and they laid wait against Shechem in four companies. And Gael, the son of Ebed, went out and stood in the entrance of the gate of the city, and Abimelech rose up and the people that were with him from the ambushment. They love ambushes. And Gael went out before the men of Shechem and fought with Abimelech, and uh, Abimelech chased him, and he fled before him, and there fell many wounded. And that was, of course, the men of Shechem wounded even unto the entrance of the gate. And Abimelech fought against the city all that day, and he took the city and slew the people that were therein, and he beat down the city and sowed it with salt. And when all the men of the tower of Shechem heard thereof, they entered into the stronghold of the house of el Barith. Well, all the factious people have false demon gods called faction, witchcraft, slander, theft, and fornication, and a false Jesus too. Mm -hmm. And it was told Abimelech that all the men of the tower of Shechem were gathered together, and Abimelech got him up to Mount Zalman, he and all the people that were with him. And Abimelech took an axe in his hand and cut down a bough from the trees and took it up and laid it on his shoulder. And he said unto the people that were with him, What you have seen me do, make haste and do as I have done. And all the people likewise cut down every man his bow, and uh, followed Abimelech, and put them to the stronghold, and set the stronghold on fire upon them, so that all the men of the tower of Shechem died. There's, the tower, of course, was supposed to be a place of safety, but not for factious people. And Shechem died also, about a thousand men and women. The curse through the man-child came to pass. Through the man-child, not from the man-child, came to pass. Let fire come out from Abimelech and devour the men of Shechem. Right? There it is. That was his curse. Then went Abimelech to Tabez. Now, Tabez means whiteness, and it represents a righteous city. And encamped against Tabez. He thought, well, I, that was pretty easy. Let's try it again with these people. <laughs> and, uh, and took it. But there was a strong tower within the city uh, representing the bride, the tower of the flock. And thither fled all the men and women and all they of the city and shut themselves in and got them up to the roof of the tower. And Abimelech came unto the tower and fought against it and drew near unto the door of the tower to burn it with fire, like he had just done with Shechem, right? And a certain woman cast an upper millstone upon Abimelech's head and brake his skull. Then he called hastily unto the young man, his armor-bearer, and said unto him, Draw thy sword and kill me, that men not say of me a woman slew him. And his young man thrust him through, and he died. 
And when the men of Israel saw that Abimelech was dead, they departed every man unto his place. Thus God requited the wickedness of Abimelech, which he did unto his father in slaying his seventy brethren. And all the wickedness of the men of Shechem did God requite upon their heads, and upon them came the curse of Jotham, the son of Jerubbaal. So let me say, this history will repeat in a spiritual way in our time, and really already has. We've seen it several times. Our missionaries in the Middle East, which we don't name in front of the faction, because they want to kill them too, uh, were attacked by three religious cults, all of which believe that they are the children of God, and were angry that the Christians were gaining so many converts from among them. So they killed some of our missionaries. These men only shared our books with hungry souls, which are full of the Word of God, and did not resist them. And they, they laughed that these people did not resist them. They cried out to God, who sent spirits in between these cults who just went on a killing spree. I'm talking about just recently. Killing spree against each other for weeks. And when the people around them saw what happened, uh, many came to the Lord, including from among these cults. Now, this scenario has happened four times with one or more of these cults against our brethren, and every time it ended up this way. One of these cults, cardinals, had done two black masses to destroy me, which obviously failed because of my Lord and Savior Jesus. In Second uh, Chronicles 20, three religious cults came against the bride, Jerusalem. Then the Lord, quote, set liars in wait, this is demons, against the children of Ammon, Moab, and Mount Sur, and they all killed each other off. And God gave us this text, among others, concerning what he will do to the faction cult. All the nations came against the bride Jerusalem. In Zechariah 14 and 3, it says, Then shall the Lord go forth and fight against those nations as when he fought in the day of battle. In verse 13, And it shall come to pass in that day that a great tumult from the Lord shall be among them, and they shall lay hold every one on the hand of his neighbor, and his hand shall rise up against the hand of his neighbor. So God's got a habit of doing this. God fought for Gideon, who was a type of the man-child, quote, in the day of battle, the same way three religious cults, Judges 7 and 12, and the Midianites and the Amalekites and all the children of the east lay along the valley for like locusts for multitude. Verse 22, and they blew the 300 trumpets, pretty harmless looking, however the trumpets turn uh, breath into audible commands, right? And the Lord set every man's sword against his fellow and against all the host. Oh, my. 
Michael had a dream that um, those who were left of the faction after this made peace with us. Mm. Well, all right. May the Lord richly bless you and may you be saved from these cultic entities. And uh, Father, we thank you so much for what you're doing, Lord God, in the name of Jesus. We thank you for saving your people from these people. And uh, in the name of Jesus, we praise and give thanks unto you for the victory. Amen. God bless you. Good night. Well, thank you, Brother David, and God bless you. Hello, saints. Good to be back with you again. Let's go to the Lord. Father God, I just praise you and I glorify you, and I thank you, Lord, for this opportunity to share your word with the people out there. And we just praise you, Lord, that everything that we have comes from you. And we need to understand that. We just thank you, Father, for your word that teaches us how he walked on the earth as our example in order for us to walk just like he did here on earth in humble humility and power. And we thank you for that, Father, in Jesus' name. Be with us today, Lord, as we give this message out. And let it be a blessing to those out there, in Jesus' name. Well, I want to talk about humility today in our life. You know, in our ordinary religious teaching, the Christian life has suffered loss. Because believers have not been guided to see that even in our relation as creatures, nothing is more natural and beautiful and blessed than to be nothing, so that God could be all. Or where it has not been made clear that it is not sin that humbles most, but grace, and that it is the soul led through its sinfulness to be occupied with God in his wonderful glory as God, as creator, as our redeemer, that will truly take the lowest place before him. Luke 22 and 27 says, I am in the midst of you as he that serves. In the Gospel of John, we have the inner life of our Lord laid open to us. And Jesus speaks frequently of his relationship to the Father, of the motives by which he is guided, of his consciousness of the power and spirit in which he acts. And although the word humble does not occur, we see nowhere in Scripture so clearly where his humility was seen. This grace is our consent to surrender and let God be all in virtue and surrender ourselves to his working. When you look at Jesus, you're going to see how he, both as the Son of God in heaven and as a man upon earth, took the place of entire subordination and gave Father God the glory and the honor that was due to him. And what he taught so often was made true of himself. He said, he that humbles him shall be exalted. And he said, he humbled himself, therefore God highly exalted him. Now listen to the words in which Jesus speaks of his relation to the Father, and how he uses the words not and nothing about himself. The not I, in which Paul expresses his relation to Christ, is the very spirit of what Christ says his relation to the Father is. 
John 5 and 19 says, The Son can do nothing of himself. And then John 5 and 30 says, I can of myself do nothing. As I hear, I judge. And my judgment is righteous. Because I seek not mine own will, but the will of him that sent me. John 5, 41. I receive not glory from men. John 6, 38. I am come not to do my own will. And then John 7 and 16. My teaching is not my own. John 7 and 28. I am not come of myself. John 8 and 28. I do nothing of myself. John 8 and 42. I have not come of myself, but he sent me. John 8 and 50. I seek not my own glory. John 14 and 10, the words that I say, I speak not from myself. And then John 14 and 24, the word which you hear is not my own. These words open to us the deepest roots of Christ's life and work. And they tell us how that the almighty God was able to work his mighty redemptive work through him. They show that Christ counted the state of the heart which became him as the son of the father. They teach us what the essential nature and life is of that redemption which Christ accomplished and now communicates. And it's this, he was nothing so that God might be all. He resigned himself with his will and his powers entirely for the father to work in him. Of his own power, his own will, and his own glory, of his whole mission, with all his works and his teachings, all of this, he said, it is not I. I am nothing. I have given myself to the Father to work. I am nothing because the Father is all. And that life of entire self-denial and absolute submission and dependence upon the Father's will is what Jesus found to be one of perfect peace and joy. He lost nothing by giving it all to God. And God honored his trust and did all for him and then exalted him to his own right hand up in glory. And because Christ humbled himself before God and God was always before him, he found it possible to humble himself before men too and to be the servant of all men. His humility was simply the surrender of himself to God to allow the Father to do in him what he pleased, regardless of what the men around him said of him or did to him. And it is in this state of mind, in this spirit and disposition that the redemption of Christ has its virtue and its intended result. And that is to bring us to this disposition that we are made partakers of Christ. And this is the true self-denial to which our Lord and Savior calls us. That is to acknowledge that self ain't got nothing good in it except as an empty vessel that God can fill up and that it claims to be or do anything cannot for a moment be allowed, this, this body of ours, this empty vessel, until we fill it up with God. And it is in this above and before everything else in which the conformity to Jesus consists. The being and doing nothing of ourselves, 
so that God can be all. And that is the root and nature of true humility. And it's because we don't understand or seek after this that our humility is so superficial and so feeble in our lives. We have to learn Jesus' characteristics, how that he is meek and he's lowly of heart. And he teaches us where true humility takes its rise and finds its strength in the knowledge that it's God who works all in all, that our place is to yield to him in perfect submission and dependence, to have full consent to be and to do nothing of ourselves. That's the life Christ came to reveal and to impart, a life submitted to God that came through death to sin and ourselves. And if we feel that this life is too high for us and beyond our reach, it must and should urge us to seek it in him more because it is the indwelling Christ who will live in us this life of meekness and humbleness. If we long for this and let us above everything else seek out the knowledge of the nature of God. Listen, God every moment works in us this secret that all nature and every creature and above all every child of God is to be the witness that we are nothing but a vessel, a channel through which the living God can manifest the riches of his wisdom, his power, and his goodness through the root of all virtue and grace, of all faith and acceptable worship, is that we know that we have nothing but what we receive from him and bow in deepest humble humility to wait upon God for it. And it was because this humility was not a temporary feeling awakened and brought into exercise when he thought of God, but the very spirit of his whole life, that Jesus was just as humble in his dealings with men as he was with God. He felt that he himself was the servant of God for the men whom God made and loved. And as a natural consequence, he counted himself the servant of men that through him, God might do his work of love. And he never for a moment thought of seeking his honor or asserting his power to vindicate himself. His whole spirit was that of a life yielded to God to work in. And it's not until we Christians study the humility of Jesus as the very essence of his redemption, as the very blessedness of the life of the Son of God as the only true relation to the Father. And the question that needs to be asked is this, are you clothed with humility? We need to ask the people in our daily life, don't we? We need to ask Jesus. Ask your friends, ask the world, and begin to praise God that there is open up to you in Jesus a heavenly humility of which you have hardly known and through which a heavenly blessings you possibly have never yet tasted can come into you. Now, there's a reason why people don't get grace from God in order to believe. Let's look at James chapter 4 and verse 6. But he gives more grace, wherefore the scripture saith, God resisteth the proud, but gives grace to the humble. 
Now we know that salvation comes when God by his grace gives faith to us to partake of the benefits and to partake of the promises. But it says here that God resists the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. The humble are a people who will have faith. What do we need to humble ourselves to? Well, because sometimes we may be humble in one area and not in another. We may be resisting God in another. We may be proud in another. We might be boastful in another or whatever. In verse 7, it says, Be subject, therefore, unto God, but resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Draw nigh to God, and he will draw nigh to you. You see, any difficulties that you have, any needs that you have, any sicknesses that you have, and you don't seem to be manifesting what God has said in his word, this is good advice right here. Draw nigh to God, and he'll draw nigh to you. You see, it's not just fighting the good fight of faith, and it's not just determination. God gives grace, and he gives it to the humble. Verse 8, draw nigh to God, and he will draw nigh to you. Cleanse your hands, ye sinners. Now, this is all advice concerning the text that we're talking about here. And purify your hearts, ye double-minded. And obviously, you can't have faith if you're double-minded, can you? James 1 and 7 says, For let not that man think that he shall receive anything of the Lord. And then verse 9, Be afflicted and mourn and weep, and let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to heaven. The Lord wants us to repent, folks. He wants us to turn from our wicked ways, and he wants us to cleanse our hands of anything that we're into that's evil. And he asks us to repent in order to have grace and to have faith. And that's part of humility. It's a part of being humble so that God is going to give you the grace that you need. Salvation is not by your works and repentance is not your works. The Bible says God grants repentance in 2 Timothy chapter 2 and in Acts chapter 11. This is a work of God too. What are the things that the Lord demands of us? He said to repent and believe, didn't he? Mark uh, chapter 1 and verse 15. Repent and believe. Many people want to believe, but they don't want to repent. And that's what God's demanding here. Repent and believe. James 4, 9 again. Be afflicted and mourn and weep. And let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to heaviness. Humble yourselves in the sight of the Lord and he shall exalt you. Well, humble yourselves in what way? In repentance, in turning from your sins, and turning from your self-will. And he says he will exalt you. In Luke chapter 14 and verse 11, it says, For everyone that exalts himself shall be humbled, and he that humble himself shall be exalted. Real plain, isn't it? If we put ourselves forward, if we walk in the ways of self and don't humble ourselves to God's word, which basically means repent, change your mind, believe what God said, and if we don't do these things, he's going to humble. And the things that we generally pray about are things that are humbling us. Crucifixions that we go through. Persecutions that we go through. Things that come against us to humble us. These are the things we generally pray to God for. 
But notice what he's saying here. If you're exalting yourself, then he's going to humble you. In other words, you're not getting out of it. <laughs> the thing you want to get out of, you can't. And the main reason you can't is because he says you're exalting yourself. Luke 14 and 11 says, For everyone that exalts himself shall be humbled, and he that humbleth himself shall be exalted. That's a great promise. And what we want to do is, is do what he said there in James chapter 4 and verse 10. Humble ourselves so that God will exalt us. He'll give us the victory over our enemies. And of course, we know we got enemies, don't we? There, these, we have fleshly enemies, but we also have principalities, powers, and rulers of darkness that take advantage of us and legally are able to do that because of our own sinfulness. So his advice is it. If you want grace, humble yourself. If you want chastening, just continue to be proud and continue to hold out, not give in to the Lord's commands concerning that. Back in chapter, uh, James chapter 5, we got a real good example in verse 16 where it says, Confess therefore your sins one to another, and pray one for another that you may be healed. How many of us have tried to exercise determined faith for somebody or for ourselves and discovered that God wanted to deal with some sin first before he would even address that situation? He wanted to address that sin. He wanted us to address it. And he wanted us to do something about it also. He said, cleanse your hands, you sinners. In James 5 and 16, it says, Confess therefore your sins one to another, pray one for another, that you may be healed. So you can probably fight the good fight of faith all you want in this situation. <clears throat> but unless you address the cause of the problem, you're probably going to waste an awful lot of time. And probably, I would say, an awful lot of people have died waiting for God to heal them of some terrible thing because they wouldn't confess their sins. And it's not necessarily that they missed heaven, but God certainly used this to chasten them and humble them, no doubt. God desires that we repent. Proverbs 26 and 2 said, The curse that is causeless alighteth not. And there's a reason why sickness and problems come on us. And we need to deal with the cause and not always the effect. The faith only thinking is we can live with the sin. Let's just deal with the effect. No, God wants us to deal with the cause. And so many times it's good that we teach the methods of fighting the good fight of faith. But we got to go to the foundation sometime. Start from the foundation up. Because we put things on that foundation that are not any good. They're wood, hay, and stubble. And the fiery trials coming to burn up that wood, hay, and stubble. And God ain't going to have nothing to do with it. But Jesus Christ in the word of God. And so he's dealing with us to do something about it. Confess your sins. Anything you need from God. Humble yourself. Confess your sins. Okay. In Psalm 66. It says uh, verse 18. If I regard iniquity in my heart. The Lord will not hear. You see. Many people are diligently attempting to exercise their faith and they find no grace from God to hold on to their faith. 
Now, faith is a gift from God, it says in Ephesians 2 and 8. And if he doesn't give it to you, you ain't going to get it. And you can try your best to get your mind straight, and you're going to fail. Notice what it says. It says, if I regard iniquity in my heart, the Lord will not hear. What choice do we have then? We've taught very well how to fight the fight of faith, hadn't we? But God is telling us that he's not going to hear unless we repent. Proverbs 28 and 13, it says, He that covers his transgressions shall not prosper, but whoso confesseth and forsaketh them shall obtain mercy. And so we just notice that unless we humble ourselves, we're not going to get that grace. And if we don't confess our sins, we're not going to have mercy. And we're not going to prosper. And so therefore, there there are things besides faith that blocks us. Now, I know faith is the main thing. God, very forgiving about our ignorances and many things that we don't know that we're doing wrong. And God overlooks it. He puts them under the blood because of our ignorance. James 4 and 17. To him, therefore, that knows to do good and does it not, to him it is sin. But if God is showing you something, and if you're in an ailment and you want to seek God to find out about something, and you find out about something, then you're responsible to do something about it. And it might block you from receiving the thing that you desperately need from the Lord. And in this case, we can see that we have to confess our sins in order to get healed. The Bible says in James chapter 5 and 16, Confess therefore your sins that you may be healed. And that's what we had to believe. All right, let's look at uh, Proverbs 16 and 18. Pride goes before destruction. Now that don't sound like somebody that's receiving what they want from the Lord, does it? Destruction is not what we pray for. It's not what we believe for. It's not according to the good promises, glory to God. There's people out there say you Christians accept all the good promises, but you don't like any of the bad promises. Well, there's one right there. Pride goes before destruction. So if you're prideful, it seems to me like it behooves us to find out what pride actually is and how many ways it can be manifested in our life. And that's why we need to read the scriptures. Because there, uh, there can be things that block us from receiving grace that imparts faith from God to bring us salvation. Proverbs 16 and 18, Pride goeth before destruction, and a holy spirit before a fall. Now, we don't pray for those kind of things, do you? But we pray for God's blessing. But God says, if you're prideful, which is obviously the opposite of humility, if you're not for me, you're against me, says in Matthew 12 and others. The opposite of humility, and he says, if you're prideful, you're going to be destroyed, and you're going to have, to, you're going to uh, to a big fall. Of course, all of that is chastening upon that old wicked man that's prideful, that old unregenerate man, the one who has to be crucified, the one you're supposed to be leaving on the cross. And he goes on to say in verse 19, better it is to be of a lowly spirit with the poor than to divide the spoil with the proud. Hmm. Proverbs 15.33 The fear of the Lord is the instruction of wisdom, and before honor goes humility. You want to be honored of the Lord? 
Do you want to be honored of the angels, honored of men, honored? Well, humility has to go first before we can have the blessings of God. The great promises that we believe for, lack of humility can be a hindrance. Proverbs 22 and 4, the reward of humility and the fear of the Lord is riches and honor and life. And I wonder how many people may have lost their lives, either spiritual or physical, or both because of a lack of humility, a lack of humbling themselves to God's word. We need to seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. His word needs to be put in our heart every day. It's the most important thing that we do over and above and including going to church. And that is to humble ourselves to the word of God because it's the life of God. There's too many people out there caught up in religion and puffed up by these false teachings of religion, false doctrines, false worship of false leaders and are being led astray from the faith. And so humility and the fear of the Lord, they kind of go hand in hand don't they? And if you're humble, you fear the Lord. And if you fear the Lord, you're humble. And this goes before riches, honor, and life. You want more of the life of Jesus? Well, one of the ways is humility. More of a physical life? Because obviously, a lot of people pass away because they don't humble themselves to the Word. And having read the Word enough to find out and believe the Word, Enough to find out that God already provided our deliverances from the curses that have fallen upon us. And it's a wonderful thing for those of you that have found that out and began to walk in that faith to see that God is going to keep his word. Glory to God. In the first place, what do we have to be proud of? What do we have that we can claim is on account of our righteousness, on account of our power or our wisdom? What do we have? Well, we're told in 1 Corinthians 1, verse 26, For behold your calling, brethren, that might not many wise after the flesh, not many mighty, <clears throat> not many noble, are called. In other words, the people who are great in this world is not the kind of people that the Lord called. He says, not many. So, meaning he does call some of them because he likes to give a demonstration of his power. And he's even able to save these people. But what he generally picks, as it says in 1 Corinthians one twenty-seven, but the God chose the foolish things of the world. Now, there's no Greek word for the things, as you know. And the rule of thumb is that when you find it in a text, and if it makes sense, fine. If it doesn't, throw it out. Verse 27 again. But God chose the foolish of the world that he might put to shame them that are wise. And God chose the weak of the world that he might put to shame them that are strong. And the base of the world and the despised did God choose. Yea, and the things that are not that he might bring to naught the things that are. That no flesh should glory before God. Now that's important to God. That no flesh should glory before God. God chooses people. He don't choose the wise. He don't choose the great and not necessarily the handsome, the gifted, naturally gifted people. He don't choose them most of the time. Many times you see that the people that are promoted to the top of Christianity are just like that. 
But in many cases, they're not found to be faithful. And they're not really gifted in the Spirit of God. And it seems like a person has to be weak in the ways of the world before they really have to trust in God and lean upon Him. When we're made capable of doing something by God only, we have to trust in Him. And that's because we know we can't do it ourselves. And we know we have no strength within ourselves. And so, why does God pick people like that? Well, he says so that no flesh should glory before God. He doesn't want any pride in us. He doesn't want any of us claiming that when something does come through us, that it's us. He wants us to give all glory to God. God will not share his glory with another. When you try to rob the glory of God because of your personal gift, then God has to humble you because you're lifting yourself up. He that exalts himself is going to be humble. Everyone that exalts himself shall be humbled, it says in Luke 14 and 11. And then in John chapter 5, Jesus said this in verse 19. Jesus therefore answered and said unto them, Verily, verily, I say unto you, the Son can do nothing of himself. Well, obviously, if Jesus couldn't do anything of himself, we can do nothing of ourselves. Nothing of any importance in the kingdom can we do of ourselves. In other words, self has no power to do the work of God. Self can't walk in the spirit as we talked about. Having the renewed mind of Christ with the renewed sight and hearing, washed with the water of the word as Hebrews chapter 5 speaks about, our self has no power to walk in the spirit or do the works of God. Now, of course, when men take over Christianity, they begin to bring God and his gifts down on their level. And of course, that's man and everything about that is just dead religion, worthless to God. And there ain't no reward for it whatsoever. Many people waste their life in another kingdom than the kingdom of God. And Jesus said the son can do nothing of himself. Jesus was both a son of man and a son of God. And he was talking about his self there. He wasn't talking about the spiritual man that dwelt in that body. He was just talking about himself. John chapter 5 and verse 30, he says, I can of myself do nothing. As I hear, I judge. And my judgment is righteous because I seek not mine own will, but the will of him that sent me. Submit to God, resist the devil, and he will flee. James 4 and 7 says, Jesus sought the will of the Father. He was humble to the will of the Father. He didn't have his own agenda. When we're driven by our own lust and our own agenda, we're not trustworthy. We're not humble, and we can expect problems. And we can expect not to have the salvation that we need because we're self-willed, stubborn, seeking our own will and our own kingdom. And so... Even Jesus said that he could have himself do nothing. And that tells us that we certainly can't expect to do this on our own. We can't even have faith. It has to come from God, and it's a gift from God. And God gives that because of grace. But he only gives grace to the humble. So therefore, if we are humble to his will, to his desires, and we're seeking to be pleasing to him in all things, we can expect to have grace from God in the area of faith. A lot of people fail in their faith because they're double-minded. They cry out to God. They wonder why they won't deal 
with what God has dealt with him about. And so what God is dealing with you about, if you want faith, if you want power in the time of your need, just remember, now is when you need to be humbling yourself to the Lord. And let's look at 1 Corinthians chapter 4 and verse 6. Now, these things, brethren, I have in a figure transferred to myself and Apollos for yourself, sakes, that in us you might learn not to go beyond the things which are written, that no one of you be puffed up for the one against the other. You know what that is? That's pride and arrogance. And then verse 7, For who makes thee to differ? And what hast thou that thou didst not receive? But if thou didst receive it, why dost thou glory as if thou hadst not received it? Why would we ever get proud of anything that we do, any gift that we have, any faith that brings forth anything, any healing that God uses us for, or anything that God does in us. How could we ever get proud of any of it? Because we can ourselves do nothing. If it wasn't for God, we, we couldn't do none of it. So anything that's of any value in the kingdom, anything that has to do with salvation is manifested through those that are humble who God is giving grace in the form of faith to administer salvation to them. So how can we be puffed up, he says? How is that possible? Because what do we have that we didn't receive from God? It was all a gift from God. And there are people that do get puffed up for just about anything. When you, uh, But when you do, let me tell you, just remember that you're likely not to... To get that grace that you need to have the faith that you need to embrace the promises like you should. Then in chapter 8, verse 1, it says, Now concerning things sacrificed to idols, we know that we all have knowledge. Knowledge puffs up, but love edifies, which means buildeth up. It builds up. So knowledge puffs up and love builds up. Verse 2, if any man thinks that he knows anything, he knows not yet as he ought to know. You and I both know that it's more than just knowledge that puffs up. People get puffed up over the gifts of the Spirit. They get puffed up over natural abilities. They get puffed up over signs or healings that God may have done through them. People can just get puffed up. But we have to remember any of those things that we're talking about there are gifts of God. It ain't nothing that we ought to be proud of. We got no reason to ever be proud of being uh, or ever be puffed up. We know the feeling. Everybody out there knows the feeling of what puffed up means and what pride means and what humility means. And what God is saying is we never got a reason to be puffed up. And if we do, you're going to miss out on God's grace. And also in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, it tells us basically the same thing. It says, but we have this treasure in earthen vessels, that the exceeding greatness of the power may be of God and not from ourselves. Obviously, God designed us. And we that know salvation, we who have come to him and know him, he designed us so that there would be no power from ourselves that would be administered or our deliverance or our salvation. When we try to do it in the flesh, it's a power of self. 
but it's not the miraculous power that God used in the scriptures to save. Today, a lot of people say that God uses the things that are on the earth today, that he uses doctors, that he uses lawyers, he uses psychologists, and he uses all these things. But God, we just read there in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, that God chose the things that are not to bring to nothing the things that are. And so God's method, of course, is faith in the promises that brings to naught the curse, the lack, the foolishness that we have. That's his chosen mission. That's what he said in 1 Corinthians chapter 1. But he said, but we have this treasure in earthen vessels. He particularly designed us weak so that the power would be, would not be from us. It has to come from God. He chooses weak vessels. Even Moses was one of the greatest men that God used. Obviously, it wasn't because Moses was great, but because God was great in him that God used what was a very weak vessel because he admitted to it. He had no ability to speak, no ability to lead, but God chose him because of that. And that's what qualified him. He chose him for that reason. He was qualified because he had to trust God and the power would come from God because he was weak. And so he says in Second Corinthians chapter 4 and verse 7, But we have this treasure in earthen vessels that the exceeding greatness of the power may be of God and not from ourselves. What's God got have to do with this vessel in order to let the spiritual man be the leader? In order to let the power of God do its work in us. We hinder the power of God so much. What does he have to do? Well, that's what the next few verses are about. He says in verse 8, We are pressed on every side, yet not straightened. Perplexed, yet not unto despair. Pursued, yet not forsaken. Smitten down, yet not destroyed. Well, what's all that about? It's all about crucifying that old, proud, arrogant, self-willed man that keeps him from being humble. Humble enough to receive God's grace through his faith and receiving our salvation. And he says in verse 10, Always bearing about in the body the dying of Jesus, that the life also of Jesus may be manifested in our body. So, God has to crucify that puffed up old man, the man that likes to lead, likes to put self forward. He has to crucify him so that the treasure that's hidden in that vessel could come out. The vessel has to be a broken vessel in order for the treasure on the inside to be seen and to come out. He says in verse 11, For we who live are always delivered unto death for Jesus' sake, that the life well, there it is. That's the treasure on the inside. Also of Jesus may be manifested in our mortal flesh. That old vessel has to be broken so that the treasure on the inside can be seen. We don't want that crushing. We don't like those terrible things that happen. And we don't like that list that Paul laid on us here in verse 8, 9, and 10. We don't like it. We pray against it. We want the blessings of God. Well, folks, the way to the blessings of God is humility. 
And humility is the act of not permitting the old man to live through you. It's the act of submitting to God and resisting the devil, as we read in James chapter 4. And 2 Corinthians 12 and 9 says this, And he saith, he hath said unto me, My grace is sufficient for thee. In other words, we really don't need anything but God's grace. And we try to go around God's grace a whole lot. We try to use the methods of the world. We try to trust in the strength of the old man. And we revert back to our natural training before we knew Christ. We revert back to the methods before Christ. But the Lord says this, My grace is sufficient for thee, for my power is made perfect in weakness. And of course, if God has to weaken your old man, and that's what many of the troubles that we go through are all about, is we refuse to let the old man stay on the cross. He has to do a lot of crucifying of that self-will. So a lot of times, we're not receiving the things we're wanting because the things that we're in are basically physical trials. We don't want that. We don't need that. And that's why humility is necessary. Because if we're humble, we're submitting to God. Even though the flesh is resisting, but we're not giving its, uh, its way because we're humbling ourselves to God. Then you can have the benefits of the kingdom because God can then give grace to the humble. And it says, Most gladly, therefore, will I rather glory in my weaknesses that the power of Christ, and I want you to notice, you don't get faith and you don't get power if you're puffed up. And if you're not humble, you don't get faith and you don't get the power. Most gladly, therefore, will I rather glory in my weaknesses that the power of Christ may rest upon me. A lot of times God has to bring us through a lot of things. The Paul, old Paul gives lists here of all the things he went through to make him weak. Why do we have to come to that point because of all the turmoil? He says in verse 10, Wherefore I take pleasure in weaknesses, in injuries, in necessities, in persecutions, in distresses for Christ's sake. For when I am weak, then I am, am I strong. And it took that to bring Paul to weakness. And there's an awesome list of the things that he went through in chapter 11 from verse 22 through verse 33. Things you would always pray against. You would always pray God's blessings instead of these things. But these things came upon Paul because he needed to be humble. As a matter of fact, he talked in chapter 12 of the same thing. He says how he was caught up to heaven and he was tempted to be puffed up about it. God had to humble him. God had to make him weak and send an angel or a messenger of Satan to buffet him so that he should not be exalted over much. He had to be humbled, even Paul. You think Paul was a great man? Not to start with, he wasn't. And God had to humble him. How much better would it be if we would decide for humility first to submit to the will of God, to submit to the spiritual man who is in agreement with the Spirit of God? We make it hard on us. 
Proverbs 13 and 15 says, The way of the transgressor is hard. Why do we go through so many hard things that we should pray again? And sometimes we don't get the answer for a long time. And sometimes never. Because we're not dealing with the problem. The thing that causes the curse in the first place. We just want to deal with the results, of course. The curse that is causeless alighteth not. Proverbs 26 and 2. We have to deal with the real problem. And notice what he said here. He said in 2 Corinthians 12 and 9. Most gladly, therefore, will I rather glory in my weaknesses that the power of Christ may rest upon me. Here's a clue, folks, to humility. It's not taking any credit for what God does through us or what he can do for us. Not taking any credit for it. Glory in our weaknesses so that the power of Christ can rest upon me. God has to humble us. He had to humble the Apostle Paul by bringing him through all these things. Let me read a few of them. Let's go back to chapter 11 here, 2 Corinthians 11 and 23. Are they ministers of Christ? I speak as one beside himself. I more in labors, more abundantly in prisons, more abundantly in stripes above measures, in depths oft, in deaths oft. Of the Jews five times received I forty stripes, save one. Thrice was I beaten with rods. Once was I stoned. Thrice I suffered shipwreck. A night and a day have I been in the deep. In journeys often, in perils of rivers, in perils of robbers, in perils from my countrymen, in perils from the Gentiles, in perils in the city, in perils in the wilderness, in perils in the sea, in perils among false brethren. In labor and travail, in watchings often, in hunger and thirst, in fastings often, in cold and nakedness. Beside those things that are without, there is that which presses upon me daily. Anxiety for all the churches. Who is weak and I am not weak? Who is caused to stumble and I burn not? If I must needs glory, I will glory of the things that concern my weakness. Paul appreciated being put in a position of weakness because that's where he received the miracles of God. That's where the power of God came from. <clears throat> now, wouldn't you like to just start out there and be humble? And that's what he exhorts us in James chapter 4, verse 10 to do. Humble yourself before God so that you can have grace, so that you can have faith and power. Both things. We see power here, faith and power. First Peter 5 and 6. Humble yourself under the mighty hand of God and he shall exalt you. He says, and Philippians chapter 2. Let's see what that said. Verse 5. Have this mind in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who, existing in the form of God, counted not the being on an equality with God a thing to be grasped but emptied himself, taking the form of a servant. Here's our example. <clears throat> Jesus is not just our Savior. He's our example. And he says to have this same mind, which was in Christ, a mind to empty yourself, a mind that does not grasp to being on an equality with God, but to empty yourself. <clears throat> in other words, you're not your God. I am not my God. 
I don't have a right to rule my life. I have a right to humble myself to him to receive grace so that Christ lives in me. Verse 7, but emptied himself, taking the form of a servant and being made in the likeness of men and being found in fashion as a man, he humbled himself. Jesus had to humble himself. So we've got to humble ourselves. He humbled himself, becoming obedient even unto death. And that's what humility is. Humility is going to a cross. It's denying ourselves, taking up our cross and following Jesus. He humbled himself, becoming obedient even unto death. Yea, the death of the cross, wherefore also God highly exalted him and gave unto him the name which is above every name. If you humble yourself and take up your cross, denying self, God will exalt you and will give you a name above every name. And notice he's comparing you with Christ. If you go back to verse 5, we also get a name. How do we take on the name of Jesus Christ? By the way, his name is his nature, his character, and his authority. That's power. That's faith. How do we take on his name? The Bible says through baptism in Acts chapter 8, verse 16, Romans 6 and 4 and 5. We're baptized into his name. And what is baptism? It is death, burial, and resurrection. we got to go through a spiritual process of death, burial, and resurrection to manifest that name. And that's what Paul's talking about, basically. In 2 Corinthians chapter 11 and 12, it's going through that death and that burial. But we can make it easy on ourselves. He tells us the way there in James chapter 4 and verse 10. If you want grace from God, if you want power from God, humble yourself. Don't wait till God humbles you because the Bible says everyone that exalts himself shall be humbled. Would you rather God humble you or would you rather take the easy way and humble yourself? Cry out to God for mercy. Repent. Confess your sins. Do these things that God tells you to do. And have the name of Jesus manifested in you. His nature, his character, and his authority. Jesus doesn't have any problems in the world. We do. And we got them basically because we're doing it our way. And we're not humble. And we need God's grace. Matthew 23 and 10 says, Neither be ye called masters, for one is your master, even the Christ. But he that is greatest among you shall be your servant. Well, a lot of times in the church, it's almost like it's in a corporate America. People are stepping on other people to get to the top. It's most important to, uh, to people to lead and to rule, to have a position in the church. And most of the people who have made their way to the top are not qualified because they didn't go through the doors. Jesus said that in John chapter 10 and verse 1. They didn't go through the door. We have to not exalt ourselves because we will be humble. And if we take a position that's not given to us by God, he got to humble us. But if we take a lower position, as Jesus taught us, and let the Lord say, come on up higher. In other words, let him give us that position. Then he doesn't have to humble us. But he talked about the man who took the higher position. And he was told to step down for somebody that was more worthy. 
God's about to do that in an awesome way, folks. Matthew 23 and 11, but he that is greatest among you shall be your servant. And in Matthew 18, he said, that was the greatest. But also in Matthew 18, he tells the same thing about the child. Matthew 18 and 1, in that hour came the disciples unto Jesus, saying, Who then is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? And he called him a little child, and set him in the midst of them, and said, Verily, verily, or verily, I say unto you, except you turn and become as little children, you shall in no wise enter into the kingdom of heaven. And if you'll notice, something that a lot of what we're dealing with down here isn't the kingdom of heaven at all. He said, except we become as a child. He said, this is the greatest. But over here, he said, the servant was the greatest. What's the difference? The servant and the child. The child is quite content. They believe it's their place to be the least in the midst. They're quite content to be the least. A lot of people are not content to be the least. They want to make something that's not theirs. They want to take a position. They want to take authority that's not theirs. There ain't no humility. The Bible says in Proverbs 18 and 16, man's gift makes room for him. Proverbs 27 and 2, let another man praise thee and not thine own mouth, a stranger and not thine own lips. Let God make our way. Let God's gift through us make our way and don't push any door. Many people, they take what power and authority they can get on earth to make a way for themselves. But he says, except you become as a child, you won't even enter the kingdom. We've got to be willing to be the least. We've got to be willing to be the least. We've got to be willing to be the servant. The word minister here doesn't mean Lord. It means servant. A diakonos, a servant. That's what a minister is. A lot of people are stepping all over anybody in their way to be what they think is a minister. But ministers are people who serve. And any one of us can be a diaconus because that was not an office in the church. But let me tell you something, a diaconus, a deacon. If you translate the same word the same way every time, it just means a servant. Every one of us is called to be servants in some form or fashion. In some mode, we've been gifted to serve the body. The gifts of God are given to us to serve the body of Christ. They're not for us to be puffed up about as though we got something, as though we deserve more. Some ministers, because they feel like they've been used of the Lord, they take a bigger slice of the pie. They act like the gift that they've been given out is theirs and that they're worthy of more. That's a lie straight from the pits. You know, I think we need to make it easier on ourselves. And we do that by what James chapter 4 said. I'll read it again in verse 6. God resists the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Be subject, therefore, unto God, but resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Draw nigh to God, and he will draw nigh to you. Cleanse your hands, ye sinners, and purify your hearts, ye double-minded. Be afflicted, and mourn, and weep, and let your laughter be turned to mourning, and your joy to heaviness. Humble yourselves in the sight of the Lord, and he shall exalt you. Glory be to God. Father God, we just thank you to give us the grace to do this in Jesus' name. We want to be submitted to you in all things, God. 
Thank you, Lord, for doing that for all of us and all the saints out there, too. God bless you, saints. We'll see you again next time, God willing. For information, materials, and to contribute, go to unleavenedbreadministries.org. Contributions only may be addressed to David Eels. Post Office Box 231616, Montgomery, Alabama, 36123. Though the rivers rise, I still believe. For your mercy stands and your word is true, oh Jesus. I trust in you. And when I face that darkest night, what will be my guiding Shining rays of red and white Jesus, I trust in you O sacred heart, in you I find Mercy seated for all time I am yours and you are mine O Jesus, I trust in you Though the mountains fall into the sea Though the rivers rise, I still believe For your mercy stands and your word is true Oh Jesus, I trust in you Though the mountains fall into the sea Though the rivers rise, I still believe For your mercy stands and your word is true Oh Jesus